Well, Paul, in writing to the Romans, exhorts them to rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, and today is, uh, is a day for many of rejoicing. Right? Uh, we want to rejoice with you. Happy Mother's Day to rejoice with you. And, uh, and I, I hope that today that you are honored by your families. I hope that uh, they, they honor uh, what it is that you do for them and how you love them and how you are uh, self-sacrificial towards them. Um, but today is a day of, of rejoicing. Uh, but the next thing that Paul says there is to weep with those who weep. And he understands that uh, the same occasion that for some is an opportunity for rejoicing, for others it means uh, grieving. And uh, we recognize that um, for, for some people, for, for some of our sisters, this is a difficult day. Uh, and, and whether that be because uh, a loss of a mother or a loss of a child, the inability to have a child or a broken relationship that exists with the child, uh, we, we want to love one another well. And so that means to rejoice with one another, um, but also to weep with one another. And I think that as a church, we need to be sensitive about some of the things that we say. Sometimes in an effort to, to be helpful, um, we can be hurtful, and we can say things that are trite. And, uh, and so uh, my hope is that as a church, uh, we would love one another well, that we would both rejoice and weep, that we would be able to, to do both of those things and care for one another and honor one another well. Um, it strikes me as I uh, begin this morning that uh, many of the people who might need to hear this message are not here. We're going to be talking about um, the, the hurt of church, uh, how uh, the hurt has, or church has hurt some people, um, and specifically um, the leadership of a church and how it's hurt. And, uh, and some, um, uh, their, their response when they have been hurt within a church has been to disassociate from church altogether. And so maybe the people who most need to hear this are not here. Um, but for those of you who are, um, I'm willing to bet that there's a large number of us who have experienced hurt from church. Um, uh, we recognize that because of the cross, we have been saved from the punishment of sin because of what Jesus does for us. And we recognize that because of the Holy Spirit given to us, sent into us, we now have power over sin. And yet we also recognize that until Jesus comes again, we still live in the presence of sin. The, the presence of sin in a real enemy, the presence of sin in the culture and world around us, but also the presence of sin within us. The, the, the church is the bride of Christ, and one day she will be presented to him with perfection and spotless but she's not there yet. And when you think about it, how much of the New Testament was actually written to address the sins of the church? Uh, one uh, contributor to the Desiring God website wrote this. Most of the writing in the New Testament about how to live in a church exists because the church has never been perfect. Most, if not all, of the letters were written to solve problems in the church. Galatians to solve legalism, Colossians to solve heresy, 2 Timothy to solve tension in succession, Philippians to solve conflict of selfish ambition, First and 2 Corinthians to solve a whole host of problems centered around the issues of human pride and gifting and speaking that led to loveless and arrogant religious activity. And that's not even to mention the letters to the church's revelations, one of which is so unhealthy it makes Jesus want to vomit. We shouldn't be surprised that we hurt one another. The question is, is, is what do we do with that? This morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We're starting uh, the study on 2 Samuel. You can turn with me there. 
And Second uh, Samuel, um, it, it begins with David hearing about the death of Saul. Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. Saul is the king of Israel, and he's, he's lying dead on this battlefield of Mount Gilboa. And, uh, and, and Saul was a man uh, who was appointed by God to lead God's people, and yet he hurt. He threw spears, and he hurt. Uh, he hurt the people in general, but David especially. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, David hears the news of Saul's death, and we're going to spend time looking at his response to that. And, uh, and so, if you would, uh, let's look at it together. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, after the death of Saul... When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. So at the same moment that Saul is fighting the Philistines on Mount Gilboa and loses, David is 100 miles away fighting a group of people called the Amalekites, and he's triumphant, right? There's a ton of of, of irony in this passage, and it kind of centers around these Amalekite people. Um, Many years before this, the children of Israel, they they were leaving slavery in Egypt, and they were on the way to the promised land, and a group of people called the Amalekites came and attacked them. And God saw this attack on his people as an attack on himself, And so years later, he orders Saul. He says, this is your first job as king, and it's to go and destroy the Amalekite people. More than that, you're going to destroy all of their stuff. Now, if you you look at this and you think, man, that's a little bit too harsh, right? We talked about this last week, that God is a different kind of different than we are, that God is holy, that God is particular. And sometimes we can look at the things of God and we can say, that's too much, that's too far, that's too extreme. And my challenge for you is to think maybe it's not that God is being too particular. Maybe it's we're not particular enough, especially when it comes to sin. And so God has ordered Saul to do this. We sign this in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And, uh, and, and Saul goes, he attacks the Amalekite people. He's successful, but he doesn't do what God says. He doesn't destroy them, and he doesn't destroy their stuff. He lies about it, okay? So here's an Amalekite. We're going to find out in a second. He's the son of a sojourner. That means that um, his dad came, left the Amalekite people, came and lived among the children of Israel, and, and, and they were to treat him um, as, as someone residing among them with, with respect, not to kill him. Uh, if you will remember, Ruth was a Moabite. She left the Moabite people, became part of, of Israel. Uh, so here's the son of an Amalekite. 
Um, he should know the rules. He should know how to treat a king. He's been living uh, in and among the people of Israel. But, but he's an Amalekite. And Saul was supposed to kill the Amalekites. He doesn't. He lies about it. And here's an Amalekite who says he killed Saul, but he didn't. If you read the end of 1 Samuel, what you discover is that Saul died by suicide. Uh, Saul was wounded. Um, he didn't want to be captured. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer refused to lift his hand against God's anointed. And so Saul falls on his own sword. He commits suicide. But here's an Amalekite saying that he killed Saul. Saul said he killed the Amalekites. Now here's an Amalekite saying he killed Saul. Both lied. Okay? The second uh, irony we find here is Saul said that he destroyed all the Amalekites' stuff. He didn't. He plundered them. And here's an Amalekite who plundered him. You see, this Amalekite, he wasn't up on Mount Gilboa treating the wounded. He wasn't doing anything honorable up there. He was stripping the slain of their valuables. He was plundering the Israelites. He plundered Saul. He took his crown. He took his armlet. Saul said that he destroyed the Amalekite stuff, he plundered them, and here's a guy who plundered Saul. And, and yet all of this is, is, is pointing to David. When, when, when Saul was losing to the Philistines, David was going about the work of God, destroying the Amalekites. Okay. Um, let's continue on. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So to say that this Amalekite didn't get what he was expecting to get is a vast understatement. The Amalekite comes to David expecting a reward for the news that he's bringing. He expects to find David. He, everybody knows David is, is God's anointed to be king after Saul. And, and, and David has, has not raised his hand against God's anointed. Uh, he, he, he's had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. He never does that. But it would seem that now that Saul is dead, the pathway to the throne for David is now clear. You would think David would be happy about that. You would think maybe he would gloat a little bit about that. Saul caused so much torment in his life. You would think he would be happy. You would think that the guy who brings the news of his death would get a reward. Instead, he gets killed. Now, he lied about killing Saul. We know that. Uh, David doesn't seem to investigate that. Uh, the guy's reward is basically capital punishment. And, uh, and, and the truth is, is, he wasn't a murderer that we know about. We, he was a liar, but not necessarily a murderer. We talked about this last week. Saul, Samuel, uh, and David, they were particular about the wrong sort of things, and they were particularly wrong about meeting out justice they really struggle to mete out justice in a way that, that, that looks like God. Um, David has a guy killed who wasn't, in fact, a murderer. He was just a liar. That's not the point that I want us to focus in on, though. What I want us to see here is David's response to the death of Saul. David's response to the death of Saul. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, if you know the story of Saul, to put it aside. Just, just for a moment, as, we, as we're going to go through the, the rest of this text, we're going to read a poem or a song that David writes for Saul called the Song of the Bow. 
And as, as, I, as I read this to you, I'm going to you know, spend time discussing or you know, uh, explaining it to you. But, but what I want you to do is put what you know about Saul aside. His, his, his disbelief, his failure, his, the way he treated David. Take that, put it aside, and form an image of your mind of Saul that only comes from what David says here. Okay? So let's look at it. Verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, the book of Jashar is a lost writing. We don't have that anymore. Interestingly enough, though, if you go Google it, there are people out there trying to hawk a book of Jashar like it's real. It's not. Uh, the book of Jashar is a lost writing. It is mentioned in Scripture two other times, in Joshua and in 1 Kings. And it means the book of the upright, the book of the just man. In other words, this is a storybook of Israel's heroes. And what David writes here about Saul ends up in this book. In other words, David is okay with Saul going down in Israel's history as an upright, just man, hero of the people. Was he? Keep going. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Saul is Israel's glory slain. And if you underline in your Bibles, underline this, how the mighty have fallen. It's repeated three times in the section. Uh, It's a really significant uh, verse, not only in Samuel, but in all of Scripture. Um, Goes on, Tell it not in Gath, Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. Um, You might remember that when David killed Goliath, the women of Israel sang songs about David. Like there was all this, this triumph and this partying going on in the cities of Israel. Now, these are two cities of the Philistines, and David is hoping that the daughters of the Philistines aren't rejoicing in the same way that the daughters of the Israelites rejoiced when he killed Goliath. Tell it not in Gath. Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 21. Uh, the mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. May the, may the ground upon which he died mourn. For there the shield of the mighty has, was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. This is a play on words that's happening there. In those days, shields were covered with leather. And in order to keep that leather from drying out, it had to be oiled. All right? Uh, Saul was anointed with oil as part of his coronation. He's God's anointed one. He was meant to be the shield of Israel. And now both him and his shield lie in the dirt. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Jonathan and Saul were valiant men of courage in battle. Saul and Jonathan beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. They were fast. They were strong. And they were united as a team, father and son. And they were beloved. Loved. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. This speaks to the provision and the prosperity. David says he, he, led, the people, he led the people to prosperity as a leader. Um, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Here's the second time it says that. How the mighty have fallen. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. 
Now, our over-sexualized culture uh, looks at this and, and claims that, that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. That's not what's happening here. Uh, to understand this, understand uh, what, it, what it's like to be a veteran. Talk to a veteran about their, their time in the military. Talk to them about what it means to share a foxhole with somebody. Talk to somebody who knows to, to have somebody risk their life for them and to put, risk their life for somebody else. There's a kind of bond that forms uh, between people in situations like this. David and Jonathan. Jonathan risked his life several times for him. They had this kind of bond with one another. Um, interestingly enough, when it comes to David's relationships with women, I don't believe David ever knew true, good, holy intimacy with a woman. Uh, there's one place in Scripture where it talks about a specific place where it talks about a woman's love for a man. And that's actually uh, Michael or McCall's love for David. She was Saul's daughter, given to David in marriage. She was later taken back by Saul. But it says that she loved David. There's only one place in Scripture where it says that. But then later on, we talked about this last week, when David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and he's dancing in nothing but some priestly underwear, she's ashamed of him. And it says she despised him in her heart. Like there's this fickle kind of love sort of happening here. I don't think David ever knew true, good love with a woman, though he had many, many wives. I'm not saying that's not his fault. But what I'm saying is, is, is his, his friendship with Jonathan was probably the purest, best relationship he ever knew. And he lost it. Uh, 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The third time that it's spoken and the last line of the poem. How the mighty have fallen. You could say that this sums up Saul's life, but it is also foreshadowing for David's life. And it's also foreshadowing for another king yet to come. So, if you've been successful in putting what you know about David or Saul aside, right? what you know about his past that you know from 1 Samuel, if you were successful in putting that aside, what is the image you have in your mind of Saul? What is he like? Right? Uh, he's an upright man. He's an upright man. He's, he's a just man. He's, he's the glory of Israel. He's the shield of Israel. He's loved. He's valiant. He's courageous. He, he, he helped his people to prosper. He's a good dad, you could say. He was always unified with his son, Jonathan. You would have this picture in your mind, if you only read this from, from David, you would have this, that he was a pretty good guy. Okay? Now bring in back what you know. We studied 1 Samuel together. But if you don't know Saul's story, Saul, he disbelieved God. He didn't obey him. He, he lied about it. Uh, he was a man who uh, had the incredibly, incredibly huge fear of people. He cared too much what people thought of him. He, he was incredibly insecure in that way. He didn't trust God. He was incredibly jealous when Saul failed to, to, to do what God told him to do, the Amalekites, God said, I'm going to find somebody else. I'm going to anoint somebody else. David was anointed king, but long before he was able to, to take the throne, uh, Saul was incredibly jealous of David. Uh, on multiple occasions, David was brought in to help soothe Saul as he becomes violent. And, and, and he's a madman essentially. And, and David is brought in to help soothe him and sing to him. And Saul's response is to pick up a spear and try to pin him to a wall. 
tries to kill him multiple times. David spends his life on the run. Ten years of his life, David spent on the run from Saul, this huge manhunt for him. And as far as, as, as Saul being a good dad, Jonathan, when he, when he stood up for David, Saul tried to kill him, his own son, several times. See, the picture that you have when you read 1 Samuel of Saul is this guy's a monster. And how is it that, that here, David writes this song of lament, the song of the bow about Saul and Jonathan. How is it that he writes this about him and he means it? It's not political posturing. It's, it's, it's not doing, he's not writing it to win people's hearts and minds. He actually means these words. How could he do that? Now, we don't live in a monarchy. And Israel is not the church. Okay? But there are some similarities here. Like Israel, the church is meant to be led by godly people. By godly men and women who are strong and tender and yet just and merciful. And yet how many of us have not experienced that kind of leadership within the church? Saul was, was meant to be a good king to lead his people well and lead them toward God and he utterly failed in that. And the, the reality is, is I, I believe there's a lot of people who have been hurt by church and I think all of that hurt is the result of leadership, whether that's sins of omission or sins of commission by leaders. How much hurt is there because of this? Um, I want to talk to two groups of people this morning. Uh, first of all, those of you who have been hurt by the church. And maybe that's ancient history. Or maybe you're fresh out of it. Maybe you're here for the first time this morning because you're leaving that kind of church behind. It's fresh for you. What can we learn about David here that will be helpful to you? Secondly, for those of you who have not yet been hurt by the church, that doesn't sound incredibly optimistic, does it? But as we just talked about, what is most of the New Testament about? Sin found within the church. And it shouldn't surprise us. This side of Christ's return, we will experience that. I hope it never happens here and never by me or our leadership. But the reality is, it can happen. And so how will you learn from what we find here from David? A side note here, um, I, I think that there's things that apply. Uh, if you are in a, you have a domineering boss, right? or if you maybe have a domineering parent, or God forbid, a domineering spouse, there are things that you could learn from this as well. But we're just going to talk about the, the church and its leadership, okay? Uh, I want to recommend a book to you. I don't recommend books very often, but this is a really short read, and it was a very impactful for me. It's a book called The Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. It reads like a play. It's like 90 pages long. It'll take you less than an hour, but it's incredibly profound and helpful. Okay? Um, it's helpful for me. I know what it's like to sit across the table from a man I called my pastor and be excommunicated. He didn't use the word excommunicated. Uh, in his words, he said, when I'm preaching, I don't want to look out there and see you sitting there. I know what it's like for overnight, my family, my wife and my kids and I, for us to lose the only Christian community we had because we, in, in this new town in which we were living. I was, I was in the process of elder training that was stripped away. I was, uh, my wife and I, we were leading a, a small group in our home. We were ordered not to have contact with them. 
I know what it's like to have people come to you and, and ask you questions and you feeling like you can't answer those questions because you don't want to slander the guy who's still their pastor. And so this book was incredibly helpful to me along with some pastoral counseling. But I want, to, I want us to look at this passage and I want us to see that there's some principles to help us here. Okay? And, and the first one is this. Remember that the same sin that lives in Saul lives in you. The same sin that lives in Saul lives in you. The same fallen nature, the same pride, the same jealousy, the same fear, the same lusts and desires, it lives in you. And the question is, what are you doing to kill the Saul in you? The reformers call this the mortification of sin. It comes from Galatians 5. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What are you doing to kill the Saul in you? Paul understood the importance of self-discipline, and that's why he says in 1 Corinthians, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, we have the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, and if the, if the, the Holy Spirit is like a, a personal spiritual trainer, then there are, are personal spiritual exercises like prayer and repentance and confession and fasting. There's these things called spiritual disciplines which we can use to help to, to, to get that Saul up and out and to mortify that within us. Um, some of you know, in, in 2023, I've, I've stepped back from the elder team. And this has been like uh, a, a spiritual discipline for me. And one, in terms of faith, I have to recognize that God is in control of this church. That this is God's church. I'm not in control of it. I don't have to be in on every meeting. I don't have to be in on every decision that's made. Do I really have faith that this is God's? It's also been uh, a work in my heart to lead me to repentance. Uh, Paul talks to Timothy about the characteristics of an elder, a character of an elder. And one of the things he says about an elder is that an elder is not pugnacious. That's what the NASB says, pugnacious. It means combative. And I can be combative. And I can pick up a spear and I can sling it with the best of them. And that needs to be mortified in me. That needs to be uprooted. That needs to be dug out. And that needs to be a work of the Holy Spirit in me. So, same sin that lives in Saul lives in you. That leads us to the second principle. Don't mistake a David for a Saul. The reality is, Saul's don't know that they're Saul's. Saul's don't know that they're Saul's. Saul thinks that everybody who's an opponent is a Saul. You understand what I'm saying? The, the reality is the Pharisees thought Jesus was a Saul, and they destroyed him. And, and the truth is, for every story that there is, about church hurt, there's also the story of, of the opposite happening where churches have hurt their leaders, assuming they were Saul's when they were really David's. Church leaders get destroyed because of false accusations all the time. So before you go after that Saul, make sure you got it right. Maybe don't go after him as we're gonna see here. Third principle, kill the Amalekites' message. The Amalekite's going to come to you. Don't kill the Amalekite, kill the Amalekite's message. There's going to be somebody that comes to you from that church or from that body, and they're going to have information they want to share with you. They're going to have details that, 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 that you, they think that you're going to reward them for telling you. Don't listen to it. 
Don't involve yourself in it. Confront them and kill the message where it stands. Proverbs 10, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Don't underestimate the power of that. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why are you tender-hearted and why do you love? Because God in Christ forgave you. Don't let the Amalekites' message continue. Kill the message, don't kill the Amalekite. But don't gobble that up. Fourth, don't divide the kingdom. It's an old movie called Jerry Maguire. Uh, it, it stars uh, a guy named Tom Cruise, and there's a scene in it where he's been fired, and he goes out into the, the sort of area where everybody else works, and he says, who's coming with me? And the temptation when you've had spears thrown at you is to say that. Who's coming with me? Who, who's going to join my team? Who's going to help me storm the castle? Who's going to help me overthrow this Saul? When you look at David's life, you don't see David going and sitting outside the city gates and grabbing everybody's ear who comes along and says, do you know what that Saul did to me? Do you know how he hurt me? What's your Saul story? Imagine how many of us there are and the power we could have. Don't divide the kingdom. You see, David stayed until he couldn't stay any longer. And I can't tell you when that is for you. He stayed until he could not stay any longer. But then he left. And when he left, he left alone. He left alone. Now, other people would end up joining them, but it was because they left on their own. He left alone. Romans 12, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not over be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, I used to think that uh, the doing good things and heaping burning coals, that that was like a, a way of hurting somebody by doing good to them, you know, making them mad on purpose. I, I think when you see burning in Scripture, you see fire in Scripture, it means two things. It means either destroying or it means purifying. And this is purifying. The goal is purifying. The goal is, is their redemption. The goal is their restoration. The goal is their repentance. The goal is for them to return. So, be good to them, do good to them. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You know, Paul's talking about things that sure sound a lot like the fruit of the Spirit, don't they? Do you know what's not a fruit of the Spirit? Division. 
Don't divide the kingdom. That requires you to trust God to take care of the Saul. Uh, number five, see your Saul's sanctification. See that hardship as a gift of grace to help you conform to the image of Christ. Do you know what David did for 10 years when he was on the run from Saul? Among other things, he wrote Psalms. Like Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. He wrote Psalm 52, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. He wrote Psalm 59, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And he wrote Psalm 63, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry land, and a weary land, there where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Do you hear the praise there? What produced that? Pain. Do you hear the faith there? What produced that? Suffering. You read the Psalms, those Psalms in all their entirety, and you will see a man, he's, he's, he's asking God for justice and deliverance, and he's asking God to take out that leader. But he's waiting for God to do that work. And in the meantime, he will be faithful. But it is pain that, that brings this out in him. You see, without a Saul, you don't get a David. God used Saul to sanctify him to conform him in, to, to mold him. Without pain, you don't get that. Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts and through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The result of pain, it leads Ultimately, to the love of God being poured out into us and into others. See yourselves as a means of grace, a means of sanctification. Last principle, when or if God takes care of your soul, mourn, don't gloat. And I say if. The reality is, is you may never see that individual experience justice in this life. They may even go on to prosper very well. They might have a very big church and a very big following. But can you trust God that he sees, he knows, and that he will execute justice in only the way that he can? However, if you hear that he has fallen, don't gloat, mourn. Mourn for the people that he or she has hurt. Mourn for the damage that's done, but mourn for them. Saul was loved by God. He was an image bearer of God. God appointed him to reign and to rule. 
And what happened to Saul is not a cause for gloating. It's a cause for mourning. It's a cause for mourning. Um, when we look at, at Saul, or look at David and, and, and Samuel, what David does for us is he points us to Jesus. When, when David is at his worst, when he fails, that means that we look up and we look at Jesus and, and how better Jesus is. The flip side of that coin is, is when David is good, when, he, when, when he's right, that also points us to Jesus because Jesus is even better. When David gets it right, it sort of points to Jesus and we see how much better he is. David here, he is, he is mourning the death of this man. He's mourning. And the only reason he, he's able to mourn all of this is because God has broken him and conformed him to the image of Christ. He's remolded him through pain and through suffering. He's able to mourn Saul in a way that he actually means it. But, but Jesus goes a step beyond. Jesus, goes a step, Jesus just didn't mourn for his enemies. He died for his enemies. You see Jesus in the, the final days of his life. We saw this from Luke. Jesus was put on the back of a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. This is a picture of a king riding to a coronation. And, and he looks out at Jerusalem and he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem, who a few days later will be calling for his crucifixion. And then when nailed to those wooden beams, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them. He mourns for them. He forgives them. Then he becomes propitiation for them. That's this big word, which essentially means that he who knew no sin became sin. Our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us, and the wrath of God comes down on him. He takes our place. You see, he doesn't just mourn. He dies for us. His enemies. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Now, the story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rises and he sends and his Holy Spirit comes upon the church. And now you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, which has enables you to do what? Overcome the Saul in you. Mortify the Saul in you. My hope this morning is that, that you will experience a taste of the, the, those the, the, the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines come down to two things. Repentance and faith. And some of you this morning need to repent because you've thrown some spears. And, and maybe the, the, somebody else threw the spear first, but you picked it up and you hurled it right back. What are the ways that you have acted like Saul towards people that you need to repent of? Faith comes in forgiveness. You know what it takes to forgive? Recognizing the gospel. That God in Christ Jesus forgave me. That's where forgiveness comes from. Belief in the gospel. Faith in the gospel. Some of us need to forgive. Not because that person is sorry for what they've done. Uh, the, the pastoral counseling that I got, the, the guy sat me down and he said, you need to be able to look that guy in the eye and say, God bless you and actually mean it. Um, I met with him for months when, when uh, counseling ended. It took me a year from that point to set the appointment with that guy. A year. And when I sat down with him, I looked him in the eye and I said, I want God to bless your life. 
I want God to bless your marriage and your family and your ministry and your church. And I forgive you for kicking me out of your church and you had no grounds to. And I ask for your forgiveness in the ways that I sinned against you because I wasn't perfect throughout it. And in the end, he had no apology to give me. He asked for no forgiveness and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I walked out of that room free. Free. See, that's the power of Christ enabling you not to be bitter, not to be entrenched in that, but to be able to be free from that. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit. And so cling to Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Ask for help in getting you to a place of repentance. You know what? I I listed some Psalms there. 34, 52, 59, 63. Read those Psalms. Let them permeate you. Let them get into your heart. Take the time. Like work with the Holy Spirit to reach that point. Don't grow more bitter. Work with the Holy Spirit to get there. But to repent for what you've done wrong and ask forgiveness, but, but also to forgive them. It requires Jesus. It requires his cross. We need that. Last thing I'll say before we pray. Don't be afraid of pain. Now, our culture and society teaches us we need to get as far away from pain as possible. The, the, one of the major themes of Samuel is repentance. Saul was unbroken, and he was unrepentant. David was broken, and he was repentant. We'll see David fall greatly. The difference between David and Saul is David repented and Saul didn't. An unbroken leader doesn't repent. And an unbroken leader hasn't experienced pain. If you run from pain, you will not allow God to do the necessary work in you that conforms you to his son. You will allow him to break you. And you will be an unrepentant person. And the the, the truth is, is you will go and you will start your own kingdom and you'll rule it like Saul. And you'll throw spears. Unbroken people who aren't repentant, hurt other people, break other people. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the force of sanctification in somebody else's life. I know I will because I'm a fallen sinful mess, but I don't want to be the guy who picks up spears and chucks them at somebody and just say, I'm just making you more like Jesus. I don't want to be the voice of sanctification in somebody else's life. I also don't want pain, but I would rather take the pain than become the Saul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Samuel. Thank you for this book. Thank you for what you you show about your heart through it. We actually need the stories to come alive in order to see your heart put on display. Father, we don't want to be like David. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be like your son. We want to be conformed to him. And that requires us to experience hardship and pain and not run away from it. I pray that we would submit and be willing to undergo what we need to undergo in order to become like you, in order to become like your son. Holy Spirit, I pray for the power to help us overcome our sin. 
I pray that we would submit to you as our spiritual trainer and to do the hard work necessary in order to crucify the souls within us. We can only do this with your help. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.